This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Canada. We call ourselves the True North Strong and Free. It's a great slogan, but with most of our population huddled along the American border and most of us never having been north of our respective regional cottage country areas, are we really a northern country? Hello, I'm Brian Lilly, and this is the Full Comment Podcast. Before we get to our next topic and guest, I'm going to ask a favor. Hit the subscribe button on whatever app or device you're listening to us on, and that will ensure you get notified when each and every episode comes out. And please remember, share this with your friends, your families, post it to social media, help spread the word. Now, when I say the North, what comes to mind? I live in Toronto. It's on the 43rd parallel, well below the 49th that we often use to describe and identify our border with the Americans. Around here, people talk about going up north, and they mean to the Muskokas, Toronto's cottage country that's actually well south of Sudbury. I calculated the furthest north that I've been, and it's a place called Waskasu, Saskatchewan, which sits at 53.92 degrees latitude north. It's north of Prince Albert. It's just a smidge more northern than Edmonton, but still, it's pretty south compared to the Arctic. I'm not trying to belabor this point, but my experience is pretty common for many Canadians. So are we truly a northern country? Do we pay enough attention to the Arctic? Lots of countries are paying attention to that region of the world, and we better start to do so as well. Heather Exner Perot is a senior fellow and a director of Natural Resources, Energy and Environment at the McDonald Laurier Institute. She's also a global advisor for the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and a research advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network. Thanks for joining us today, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. And you're someone that spends a lot of time thinking about, talking about, writing about the North, writing about the Arctic. As a country, do Canadians pay enough attention to the Arctic? Well, there's, I mean, there's different ways to think about it. From a policy perspective, from a security perspective, I would say no. Um, there's lots more we could be doing, should be doing, um, you know, for the average Canadian. I think there is a sense of Northern identity that some other countries wouldn't share for the, you know, the United States wouldn't have that same identity, even though they have Alaska. 
Um, even for Denmark, I think Greenland is much more remote uh, for the average Danish person than it is for Canadians. Um, so there, you know, it is fundamental to our identity, but as you say, most people haven't been there. Um, we don't have great strategy. We don't have uh, great implementation in that area. So there's lots more to be done. Have you been, how far North have you been? I'm guessing a lot further North than Waskasu. I have been to all eight Arctic countries. So the five Nordics, um, Alaska, I've been to Siberia, I've been to Yakutsk. Um, and then I've been to all three territories and I've been to Greenland. So yes, I've, I've done, I've done all of the, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I've, you know, I'm a social scientist. So I usually go to the capitals. I don't, I don't go on the land and, and study tundra or anything, but I've been to a few of the national parks further north. There was recently a report from the Senate and, uh, most Canadians, when they think of our government, don't think of the Senate, but they, do good work. Uh, and they've issued a report called Northern Lights, a wake-up call for the future of Canada uh, by the Special Senate Committee on the Arctic. Uh, they do say that we've got to worry about sovereignty in the Arctic, uh, especially with the Northwest Passage opening up, other countries being interested in the resources that are there, having very different views of how those resources should be extracted, if at all. Um how do these changes that are happening in the North play into our, our Arctic sovereignty strategy, if if we even have one? Yeah, so, so, you know, in Canada, we often think of the Arctic through this sovereignty lens. And it's probably not the most policy pertinent um, lens, but it's kind of been infused in our, in our national consciousness. So there is the issue of the Northwest Passage, is it internal waters or an international strait? And and notably, we disagree with the Americans on this, but we've pretty much agreed to disagree. Uh, and even since 1988, we had an agreement um, that we implemented with them. And so it's a well-managed dispute, um, you know, essentially that the reason the Americans don't want to recognize the Northwest Passage as Canadian internal waters is because they are afraid that would set a precedent for other international straits, like the Strait of Malacca or Strait of Hormuz. So it's not so much about the Northwest Passage, it's about freedom of navigation in general. And so, you know, so, so in general, they say, okay, you know, we won't challenge you there. Um, you don't push it too far either, just so we don't compromise other areas. So, so that's the one thing. Then there's also this extended continental shelf. So under the law of the sea, which was passed in 1982, countries can claim um, you know, their 200 mile exclusive economic zone, everyone has that. But if your geology extends quite a bit further, you can go up to 350 miles or more. In essence, this means that the entire Arctic seabed um, is open to division between Canada, Denmark, uh, with Greenland and, and Russia. And so we are negotiating how far does our extended seabed go? How far does the Russians go? We aren't agreeing, obviously, but it's not a place that we think we're going to go to war over. The other, the last well, one. Well, ho hopefully not no. go to war. I hope not. <laughs> I just want to say, Brian, because the last territorial dispute we had was on Hans Island. And we actually figured out a negotiation. We negotiated that and solved that particular sovereignty issue with Denmark uh, just a few months ago. So we have made progress on that one. I remember back to 2010, ancient history now, it seems. Um, China's then president, Hu Jintao, was coming to Canada for a state visit, first one in 35 years. Uh, or No, sorry, that was the earlier one. But he was showing up in 2010, and around that time, there were interviews given by senior government officials to 
Chinese English language media, obviously directed at sending a message to Canada. And they were making noises that, well, China has 20% of the world's population. Therefore, they should have 20% of whatever is in the Arctic. And they have a very different view so uh, of, of how the Arctic should be treated. I, is there more to our, our view of, of why sovereignty matters and, and, and why we want to ensure that we have some control over areas in the north is there more to it than just the united states in the northwest passage when you've got uh russia looking to make the the arctic waters a year-round international shipping zone when you've got countries like china or russia wanting to go in and do resource extraction in ways that we wouldn't approve of right so so with regards to the chinese that was a provocative statement they made yeah, and you had the context was very different around 2008, 2010. That was at the height of the last commodities super cycle, commodities boom. And everyone was looking for resources everywhere. And, and a lot of commodities had their record price levels at that time. Remember oil hit $147 a barrel. And at that time, Arctic resources looked like they might be economic, that you could actually make money by developing them. And then the commodities down phase hit and we had a bust. And so Arctic development really hasn't, um, hasn't occurred at any kind of pace in the last 10 years because commodity prices have been so low. The Chinese at that time, you know, made that provocative statement, said they're a near Arctic state and wanted to view the Arctic as the common heritage of mankind. Um, so it's kind of this international <laughs> zone. And I mean, obviously the interest for them is that, you know, then they have equal access to from everyone. That's not a Canadian interest or American interest or Russian interest is the interesting one or Nordic interest. But the international law is pretty settled around that, like I say, with the law of the sea, exclusive economic zones and the extended continental shelf. The one, um, you know, the one wild card is fishing um, in international waters. This lot of these things beyond 200 miles, it is, you know, um, the extended continental shelf is only the seabed. So if you wanted to do um, undersea mining, not the fishing. But actually, about uh, three years ago, there was uh, an Arctic fishery uh, agreement, a moratorium on fishing in the Arctic, in the Central Arctic Ocean. There's no fisheries now anyways, because it's so cold. It's not a great place for uh, wildlife. So it was an easy agreement to come to because no one was fishing there anyways. But China, Korea, uh, the European Union, Iceland, Canada, uh, United States all agreed that we would not fish there until we understood the fisheries better. So in that respect, China was playing ball on the one area that, you know, they, they might have be able to independently go in the Arctic is on fishing. So if a sovereignty lens isn't the right way of looking at it, what is the right way of looking at the North? It's a sparse population um, and one that is not, overly prosperous uh one where living there is incredibly expensive i mean we've all seen the the photos of what it costs to uh, to buy what we would consider basic foodstuffs in the north mart uh but all of that needs to be shipped up do we need to look at it from a uh, a perspective of of making sure that uh, there, there's a decent quality of life for the people that live there, of, of uh, empowering them, of uh, going to uh, a, an economic model that, that works for people in the North. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's that community lens, like you're alluding to, and I can talk about that. There's also a security lens separate from sovereignty. So sovereignty is, you know, do we have control? Is it ours? Is it undisputed? It is. And yet 
it's still a very vulnerable area uh, for hypersonic missiles and things like that coming from Russia and China. So that's why we need NORAD modernization. Um, that's why we need to have, you know, domain awareness. Um, you know, when a Chinese weather balloon comes over, we need to know that it's coming months in advance and be able to take it down. So, so there is that security issue I can talk more about. On the community side, though, and it's an important conversation is, you know, it is very, it is the most sparsely populated. We have the least population density. The Canadian Arctic is mostly the coldest, the most sea ice infested, uh, will be the last to melt. And all these things make it more remote, more difficult to develop than the Nordic um, area and even most of Russia. Some of some of Russia's is obviously just as difficult as Canadian, but not all of it. Alaska still has warmer currents, is more easy to access. So the Canadian Arctic is very different in that way. Um, the port of, you know, port of Anchorage has year-round access. Port of Nuke in Greenland has year-round access. Uh, but in Canada and our Arctic, they'd be, you know, ice infested. You might get a three-month season. So it is more remote. That makes it more expensive. Um, there's only 110,000 people in our three territories. So there's lots we could do. Uh, but, but it'll always be expensive and always be difficult. The, the secret sauce economically, from my perspective, obviously is resource development. Um, and actually right now, 99% of the territory's exports is mining. Um, but there's more that could be done. And obviously now we're looking to have, you know, friendly sources of critical minerals. Um, there's not a lot of infrastructure there. So it makes it cost prohibitive, uh, for miners to invest there, to develop there. There's not always social license. So there's lots we could be working on to enhance the resource development, make it more competitive, um, and then get those orange source revenues and those jobs and that training to northerners. There was a, a real emphasis in some ways, um, critics would dispute it, but in some ways from the Harper government. And there's been less of an emphasis from the Trudeau government, at least in, in terms of gestures like Stephen Harper would take an annual trip to the north um, when the United Nations was trying to determine boundaries. Uh, they took a very different tone, saying ag aggressively trying to say, uh, well, here's why we believe this territory belongs to Canada. Uh, Trudeau's view was leave it to the experts. Aside from tone, though, has much changed in how the federal government, which is ultimately responsible for the Arctic. The territorial governments do have some responsibility, but uh, I, I would argue that the federal government seems to be a bigger player. Has there been much difference in terms of policy between the, the, the two governments now that we're eight years into the Trudeau administration, or is it just a matter of tone and emphasis? So it's more than tone and emphasis. Um, I would say that there's been a real lack of ambition from the liberals uh, on the Arctic from both from both a domestic and a foreign policy perspective. You know, if I were to give them good marks from something, um, you know, the Inuit crown relationship uh, seems to be stronger. There has been money put in. Um, but from a, from a security and from a foreign policy perspective, almost nothing. So they did develop their own strategy. The Liberals was the Arctic Northern Policy Framework. I think it was 2019 that it was finally approved. Um, and it was a long consultation process. It was what you might expect from the Liberals, you know, where they had, you know, all the territories, all the Indigenous groups, a couple provinces, even Manitoba uh, was consulted. I think there was 25 stakeholders that were consulted. And the document is very much just a, a consensus of, you know, these are the things that we find important. And there was no real leadership. It was more like, you know, the federal government guided the process, but didn't want to lead anything, didn't want to presume to lead, you know, northerners on the north. But that leaves a real vacuum is that 
for someone outside of Canada to look at our Arctic Northern Policy Framework, it's very dilute. It's not very ambitious. It's not very concrete. It's not very practical. There's not a lot of guidance. It's a plan to plan. It's a framework. It's not a strategy. And, and, and that starts to show, you know, and so when we're dealing with something, uh, like, you know, the need for critical minerals, uh, exploration, like Russia invading Ukraine and changing kind of the balance of geopolitics, there is no guidance and there's no strategy really on, on what Canada is going to do through the Arctic to address these things. Um, and, and so, you know, the big story in the op-ed and why I'm here this week is my op-ed in the, in the National Post is, while Trudeau was invited to the to meet with the Nordic leaders in Iceland, special guest, it's, it's, it's quite an, you know, it's quite an honor. It means something uh, that it was a Canadian prime minister was invited. At the same time, we closed the Canadian International Arctic Centre in Oslo, which was set up in, in 2009, kind of the last time the Arctic was big in geopolitics. And, and, it, and, you know, our one senior Arctic official is also responsible for Europe and Eurasia. Just imagine that. In Canada, we lump under a single diplomat Arctic, Eurasia, and Europe affairs. That's um, it's preposterous. That's a pretty, it's preposterous. Yeah, it's a pretty big area. E- even just Eurasia or all of Europe, that's a pretty big area. Now, I, I did want to ask you about the the closing of that center. What was it, and why was it in Norway? Why did we not have our own center on uh, the Arctic in in Canada? The, the you know the thinking behind it is to have some presence in the region. Again, are we an Arctic leader? Are we a G7 nation? Do we want to provide some thought leadership and some concrete practical security leadership in this area? And if you do, then you should have some presence on the ground and you should get to know the stakeholders and the partners and the issues uh, and be seen and be present. So that was the thinking at the time. I don't know that the center itself was, was it certainly wasn't as effective as it could have been. And so maybe, you know, if I'm being generous, maybe that's part of the reason of why it would close. But the solution, in my mind, wouldn't be to close it, it would be to make it more effective. Um, that, you know, right now in 2023, our presence in that region on the northern flank of NATO with our Nordic partners as the Arctic Council uh, is flailing a little bit because because Russia is, is, is a member of it. This is a very important time uh, for us to be there with our Nordic partners to understand them, to reassure them to be a support. And we seem to be doing the opposite. And again, it's this lack of ambition, a lack of seeing ourselves as a, as an Arctic leader, and certainly a lack of being an Arctic leader. And it's, you know, of all the places where Canada should lead, should be stepping up, you would think the Arctic would be it. Uh, and we're doing exactly the opposite. In your op-ed in the National Post, you did mention Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister, going on, uh, I believe it was CTV's question period, and in saying, you know, we, we want to increase our influence in the world. That's been that's something they've been saying for eight years now. And and I would argue that by trying to be involved in everything, but not committed to anything fully. Um, well, per, perhaps I'm being unfair or fully committed in, in Ukraine, but they want they, they decided that Canada should be part of everything. But we're not focused. Um and I would say that that has watered down our influence it, it, in the Arctic being part of that. So I, so I absolutely agree. And I think that's consensus. And the fact that Jolie is saying oh, we want to <clears throat> increase our influence shows at least that they're acknowledging that we haven't been influential. 
that we are that we are laggards and we're having, you know, all of our allies saying in back channels and in leaks that we aren't stepping up in NATO uh, and how surprising it is, uh, you know, with all of our, you know, that we aren't stepping up on the energy side, on the resource side, on the Arctic side, on the NATO side. Um, you know, they have a war on their border. We and, and we're still sitting here so complacent about everything. So at least Jolie is recognizing you know, that this is this is what's being said. Our allies are looking for more. And we should start doing something. You know, it's eight years too late. <laughs> at least it's happening now. You know, it's, you know, it's been, it's, it's been 18 months since the war in Ukraine started. And now we're trying to, you know, figure this out a little late, but so, so yes, we absolutely need to do more. And, and it's not a mystery. What do our allies want from us? And it's the agenda of Biden when he came to Ottawa in March. What were the things the Americans wanted to talk about? Again, NATO are 2%, NORAD modernization. Uh, energy and resources, getting critical minerals and energy out to our allies. Um, so it's not a mystery what they're looking for us. And now, you know, can we start to do something about it? And the Arctic holds a key to a few of those things. It holds a key to continental defense through Nordic modernization. It holds a bit of a key through NATO because it's the northern flank uh, with Russia. Yeah, I mean, Sweden and, and Finland join NATO, uh, where a lot of the activity is happening, where some of the new, you know, uh, vulnerabilities are being exposed. And then it's critical minerals. It's one of the last great geographical regions where there is untapped critical minerals that we could start tapping. Uh, and we need it not only to get off Chinese and Russian dependence, but to have this energy transition. So, so here is an area that purpose built for Canada to lead in. But again, it's just like we're just discovering that this region exists now in 2023. Well, I've been listening to politicians talk about the reign of fire for longer than I'd like to admit. It's been at least 20 years, if not more. And the Ontario government, mostly I've heard about it from various incarnations of the Ontario government going back to when Ernie Eves was premier, Dalton McGuinty, Kathleen Wynne. Now we've got... Um, we've got the Ford government and they appear to be making some headway. They've got... Um, to the, the two closest indigenous groups leading an environmental assessment uh, to look at, can they go in there? Can they build the road? Can they uh, begin to extract the minerals that are there, the critical minerals? And, and while everyone says this is incredibly important, you've also got the, um, the federal government questioning it from an environmental standpoint. And so there seem to be mixed signals about what we can and, and should do um, I, I doubt that is something that is very helpful in, in extracting these, um, uh, these critical minerals that you're talking about. So I think Canadians should know that we actually extract fewer critical minerals in 2023 than we did in 2019, and in many cases less than we did in 2005. So we are very much going the, the wrong way if you think critical minerals are important to our economy, to the energy transition, to our security. We are going the wrong way. And so, and, and so again, like you say, since 2015 until, until the Ukraine war, there was very much a sense and Bill C-69, the impact assessment agency kind of institutionalized this, that we want to move away from resource extraction. The prime minister said, you know, at WEF once in, uh, in Switzerland, we want to be known for our resourcefulness, not for our resources. And, and that, you know, our young people should go and do university and white collar jobs and that the future is not in resource extraction. And now here we are, you know, climbing back from that saying, wow, actually, we do need these critical minerals. Our allies are asking for it. We need more energy. Uh, we're going to face, we're facing energy crises. We'll face some more and what can be done. And so at least on critical minerals, we've heard a change of tone. 
We have a critical mental strategy. Uh, you know, you know, provincial governments like in Ontario are trying to push this forward faster. We're building battery plants that rely on these supplies. So rhetorically, there has been a change of tone. But in practice, all of the difficulties on the regulatory side, on the permitting side, on the financing side, on the international competitive side, none of that has changed. Um, and so now they've committed in budget 2023 that they're working on it. They have a task force. They expect to have some reforms by the end of the year. But there isn't really confidence in industry, I would say, from all of my many conversations, that they know how to unwind what they've just spent eight years implementing. Uh, so it'll be a tough road for sure. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right now. But when we come back, I, I want to ask you about um, the differing views. You know, you've written about the uh, Americans taking a renewed interest in the Arctic, um, the reasons that Canada should take a greater interest due to how things are going with Russia. Uh, but I want to get into a, a bit about the different viewpoints and, and, and how those countries are looking to either uh, play in the Arctic, extract in the Arctic, exploit compared to what we're doing. Um, can uh, contrast that with what Justin Trudeau said uh, at the WEF that you mentioned back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Heather, when I was looking at different articles uh, preparing for the interview, I found one in India. I was just trying to find out how many uh, clear sailing days do we have going through the Arctic Ocean. And, you know, when you see articles in Canada about being able to sail the Northwest Passage, it's often accompanied with, oh, this is bad. This is going in the wrong direction. I found one out of India celebrating the ability of Russian um, uh, mariner traffic to uh, spend more time, to have a longer shipping season, and how great this was. There really are different views out there on on, on whether the, what's happening in the Arctic is a good thing. Uh, where are we compared to the Americans, compared to the Russians on, on things like that, using the, the Arctic as a, a shipping route? So let's, so, so the Russians are in a class of their own when it comes to the Arctic. They have half the territory, two-thirds of the people, three-quarters of the GDP in the Arctic. And the Arctic is so much more important to Russian politics, to the Russian economy than it is everywhere else. And the statistic I like to use is, depending on the price of oil, um, the Arctic represents probably 15 to 20% of Russian GDP. It's huge. The Canadian territory is far less than 1% of our GDP. Alaska, far less than 1% of American GDP. Greenland is far less than 1% of Danish GDP. So we are really looking at apples and oranges. Um, 
that said, you know, we have a lot of the territory. Why are the Russians so far advanced? One is, you know, they, you know, they put the state policies and, and, you know, force people there into Siberia for a long time. But also because the Northern Sea Route is a better route than the Northwest Passage. Uh, it is open for longer and they have the warm, a warm current that goes all the way to the Barents Ocean, all the way to where most of their natural gas is. So we have seen an incredible LNG boom in Arctic gas in the last probably seven, seven years, and it's continuing. And one reason is because it is almost ice free all through the year from where they are, you know, from Yamal, uh, from where their, you know, big reserves of natural gas are in the Arctic Ocean, all the way to Europe. So almost all their natural gas, their LNG has been, has been going to Europe. Now they have to pivot, obviously, that the Europeans are still importing record amounts of Russian LNG, but trying not to. And so the Russians are looking in the medium longer term that they need to go to Asian markets, to India, to China, uh, and others. But that is the ice choked way. That is the far more difficult way. So the Russians have invested in these heavy icebreakers. They have, you know, far more nuclear icebreakers than, uh, you know, anyone else, almost combined. Um, to give them themselves the opportunity to export their goods from the Arctic to Asian markets. So they are working on that. In Canada, almost nothing is happening. And one reason is that the Northwest Passage is a far, um, you know, a far worse sea route, and it always will be. So like I said before, it, it, is, the, it is the last sea ice area. It is choked, ice choked for longer. Um, it will be the last one to melt if we ever see uh, ice melt for the summer season. It always refreezes because it tilts at 23 degrees and, and the winter is six months of darkness. So it'll always refreeze. It's also narrow. Uh, and it's also shallow in many parts. So it's a very... And going through a lot of islands and, and, and straits that the Russians just aren't dealing exactly. with. Exactly. They have the... If you look at, you know, the top of, the, of of Russia, it's pretty much a straight shot. So even the ice break, you know, and it's not easy. It's never, it's never easy to ship in the Arctic under no circumstances. But it is so much easier on the Russian side. And that's why the Northern Sea Route is so much more developed. On the Ameri- but we, we, we did have plans for our own icebreakers, and I don't think that that's ever come to fruition. No. Well, we do have, we do have icebreakers, and now, you know, we, so the one thing the Harper government did is, is you know, launch the Arctic Offshore Patrol ships. Um, so I think we have three in service now, three more are coming, and the Coast Guard's probably going to oh, okay. operate too. So, so we have increased capability there. Um, we have increased some monitoring capability, satellite capability. So it's not as if nothing's happening. And also appreciating how difficult it is to operate in the Arctic. The Canadian forces are very good at it. Um, and we have the Canadian Rangers, uh, which is, you know, primarily indigenous kind of paramilitia that obviously have incredible um, intelligence and an understanding and experience with the land that train our Canadian forces. We have some, you know, kind of mutual learning between them. So we have advantages in that respect. So when people say, for example, oh, China is going to come to the Arctic. Uh, no, they have almost no competence operating in such an environment. And, and when you're up there in the Arctic, it's, it's, it's about survival. Uh, you know, let alone, there's no occupying. There's no taking over territory. It's trying to survive in that territory long enough to achieve whatever your mission is. So that's why we don't think there'll be a hot conflict in the Arctic is because as, as a military theater, it is so, so difficult. It's more, it's, you know, the hypersonic missiles passing over it is the real concern. Why the re-engagement by the Americans? Is it political? Is it economic? Is it uh, just a change in administration? That's a great question. So, 
so, you know, for a long time, the Arctic was, was not, even it was important to Canada uh, in the 90s, at the same time that the territory of Nunavut was being developed as the tank, we had many land claim agreements with Inuit. So it was important in Ottawa. Uh, and we are conceiving of ourselves as this northern nation in the 90s. And we are the ones that pushed the creation of the Arctic Council. And the Americans were very, you know, agnostic about it. They really needed to be pushed. Uh, they only agreed because we said we won't discuss the military. It won't be a treaty-based organization. Um, you know, it's just a forum for talking. And so that's how the Americans were convinced. But then, the, you know, again, it's the commodity cycle that hit, you know, in 2008, 2009, uh, the Russian flag planting at the North Pole in 2007 that re-peaked their interest. And now it is, you know, again, they're an American superpower. Um, Norgard, you know, the continental defense is more important. The critical minerals are more important. The oil is more important. Russia is making a lot of moves in the Arctic uh, to develop it. And so that's brought them in. And so they have a new strategy as of last October. They're creating a new Arctic ambassador role. Mike Sprague is going through the nomination process. They've opened up a consulate in Trump. So they're making so many moves while Canada has been standing still for about 10 years. In terms of, of energy, um, energy usage in the North, there, there is a push on um, several provincial governments that started with uh, New Brunswick, Ontario and Saskatchewan. I think Alberta's joined in now on trying to facilitate the use of small modular reactors, small nuke uh, plants that could be placed somewhere like northern communities. How important is, is that sort of, of policy when you consider how much is run by dirty diesel generators in the north? Yeah, I think there's about 170 communities in Canada that are diesel dependent. And in Nunavut, for example, they are all 100% diesel dependent. Um uh, Yukon has some hydro and Northwest Territories has some hydro, but they're also very diesel dependent. And when you look at mining up there, um, they're almost all diesel dependent too. So, you know, uh, some of the diamond mines, I know will take 85 million liters of diesel a year to run. So just think of, just think of that. So, so we, wow. and they're starting to age. A lot of them are put in the fifties and sixties and they're starting to age and they need to be replaced. So we don't want to replace them with diesel. Um, so for me, you know, we talk about the SMRs and we talk about, you know, kind of the on-grid stuff happening in Ontario and Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, the far more exciting application for Canada are these micro reactors that are combined heat and power and can do the job that diesel does, not only for communities, for clean energy, then you're not dealing with black carbon and the pollution that comes from that and the noise, um, and the other, you know, on the climate change impacts, obviously, but but also, you know, a, a secure, they only need refueling every seven or eight or nine years. Um, they're very safe. Um, you can bury them um, and you can mine. So all of a sudden, here's an opportunity in, where we are going to be able to have energy for the mining, energy for the communities, and also energy for the military. So it's like a trifecta, these micro reactors, because when you're talking about the enormous amounts of, of data, of monitoring, um, you know, of, of you know, watching if Nor that NORAD, the NORAD facilities need, microreactors can provide that. In fact, the first microreactor uh, going in Alaska is that is at an air base, um, U.S. U.S. Air Force base, because it makes so much sense. So I am so excited about the prospects of microreactors provide cheap, cheaper, reliable, clean, affordable energy for so many different purposes that we don't have right now. Uh, speaking recently with someone who's working on um, energy security for northern communities, and they they are speaking to people in 
um, places like Sweden. They were until the invasion, speaking to people in Russia and, and dealing with um, the Americans in Alaska. And they said that we are just so far behind when it comes to providing cleaner energy and that they were just in the Yukon. And, and you mentioned the noise, and that may sound trivial, but when you've got a constant din of a generator behind you, uh, that, that, that does have an impact on you. Now, plus the, the particulate matter and, and everything else that, uh, that goes with it. So, um, that's a, a, an interesting angle to, to, to circle back as we close then, um, the, the, we've got policies and we've got talking and the phrase that you used about the, um, the government's plan, a plan to plan. That sounds like the most government thing I've ever heard. And, and unfortunately far too common in many areas, but you've said that we could be a superpower in this one area. We, Canada is not going to be a superpower in the world at best middle power. And only on some points, not, not even at, not even on all points can we be a strong middle power, but Make the case for why we need to be an Arctic superpower. Well, because it's one area where we can lead. And so so it's important to us, you know, we, we have a huge amount of territory. You know, we do have Canadians there. We do have experience and, and the struggles and challenges of remoteness that many, you know, few other people have. Um, but it, it's it's more to the point of what is Canada's role in the world and what can we contribute and the Americans are taking up a pretty big burden on a lot of angles here and, and would like to share that burden with some of their closest allies. And here is Canada tailor-made really to provide the thought leadership, um, the innovation, the strategy on the Arctic. And, and why do I know we can do it? Because we were that person. We were that country in, in the 1990s that provided, you know, uh, new arrangements with Indigenous peoples on the, on the governance side. Um, we've, that we are the best at remote mining, that we, we do know, you know, how to operate in an environment so well that we did lead thought leadership on foreign affairs in that region. Um, so we've done it before and for whatever reason, we, we let it fall by the wayside and there was a huge vacuum and now the Americans are having to fill the vacuum. Um, but they have, they have other things that they could be thinking about. So for me, it's just, we're a G7 nation. Where can we best contribute? And for me, the obvious answer is the Arctic. We shall see if the government is listening to you and listening to this Senate report and, and others who are making some very good arguments. Heather, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember what I told you at the start? You can subscribe to Full Comment, so hit subscribe. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, hit the subscribe button. Listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices and help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review and tell your friends all about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.